This week's episode of Propaganda is generously sponsored by Oregon State University's eCampus. Does history really predict the future? Push up your sleeves and explore how actions of our past affect the current world. An online degree in history from Oregon State University equips you with the skills to take a critical look at patterns and relationships from our history. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash history. This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Well, it looks like uh, some racist revisionists have scored another win as a Confederate monument now being removed 120 years after it was erected. Across the United States, a movement is underway to get monuments honoring the Confederacy taken down. Local governments, after sustained protests from citizens, are starting to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be celebrating the Confederacy. You know, celebrating the white guys who led the charge to secede from the United States so they could continue enslaving people? Kind of weird that their names and faces are emblazoned in places of honor still today. Memorials to generals like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis are built into the fabric of many American cities, and Confederate flags still fly from some government buildings. Last year, activist Bree Newsom garnered national attention when she scaled the flagpole outside South Carolina's Capitol building and pulled down the Confederate flag that flew there. As she descended the pole into the hands of police officers, she recited a prayer. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A month later, when the flag was officially removed, a huge crowd gathered. As the Confederate flag was lowered to the ground, the crowd broke out into the civil rights protest song, We Shall Overcome. One flag down, many, many more to go. Southern Poverty Law Center says there are at least 1,170 publicly funded Confederate symbols across the country. In Austin, Texas last month, the school board voted to rename Robert E. Lee Middle School. Nearby in Houston, the district voted also last month to rename seven schools that were named for Confederate generals. Stonewall Jackson Middle School will become Yolanda Black Navarro, named for a beloved Houston Latina community activist. And at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, students and professors successfully pushed to get a statue honoring a Confederate soldier removed. These monuments and flags seem like static objects. They just sit there, right? But actually, they tell an ever-changing story. They tell stories about who we honor and how we see our history. A monument to slaveholders continues to tell that history, to say these guys were important and respected to each new generation. Having a Confederate flag flying over your state capitol tells a story about the values and ideas that politicians try to embody still. And the debates over these symbols of history show just how crucial these stories are to people's identities today. In a lot of ways, the calls to remove these memorials are calls to rethink how we tell our history, to change who's in control of the narratives we tell about the past. 
there's probably nowhere that this tussling with history and identity has been more apparent than in New Orleans. Last year, the city council voted to remove four prominent monuments to Confederate generals. New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu explained the plan on CNN. Post-Katrina, what we've said was we're going to build the city back not the way it was, but the way it should have always been had we gotten it right the first time. And in that discussion, uh, in the context of what's going on around the country in terms of difficult race relations, we think that symbols matter here. And we want the symbols in the city to reflect really who New Orleans is historically, not just a small part of our history. The, the point is, though, he's, he's, a, he's an important figure in American history uh, beyond just the, the war, uh, the Civil War. Well, if you I, take that statue down, are you wiping out a part of American history? No. Well, first of all, when you, there's no way that you can wipe away a part of our history. Uh, but there's a place for monuments like this, and one of them is in a museum where you can remember it well. And this really isn't about Robert E. Lee uh, or really about the Confederacy. It's more about New Orleans and how New Orleans sees herself. The backlash turned nasty. Defenders of the monuments filed lawsuits to stop their removal. Then, when the city tried to hire contractors to actually do the physical work of hauling away the monuments, the companies that expressed interest in the job got intimidating phone calls and death threats from white supremacists. One contractor's car was set on fire outside his office. Fearing the safety of workers, the city has put the monument removal process on hold for who knows how long. People often think of history as existing just in books. But actually, history is dynamic. History is the stories that we tell ourselves about the past. And those stories change depending on who's doing the telling. That's the theme we're exploring on today's episode. Who writes our history? And which stories get told? We have an interview with the brilliant historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz about her book, and indigenous people's history of the United States. We also jam out to the tunes of Bessie Smith, a blues singer from the 1920s who told her own history in song. But first, Iranian-American comedian Nagin Farsad joins us to share some wisdom and hilarity from her book, How to Make White People Laugh. Stay tuned. When the book, How to Make White People Laugh, landed on my desk, it fulfilled its promise immediately. The book's bright yellow cover and bold title made me crack up. Iranian-American comedian Nagin Farsad is the brains behind the new book, which turns out to be a breezy memoir about identity, politics, and also dating and other stuff. Farsad is known for her work on a subversive poster campaign that countered Islamophobic ads put up in the NYC subway system in 2014. Responding to bigotry with sarcasm is Farsad's style. She's also the director of the 2013 film The Muslims Are Coming, which follows a group of Muslim comedians as they tour the United States doing stand-up. I talked with Nagin about her new book and the importance of learning history from multiple perspectives. 
Nagin, your book just came out. It's called How to Make White People Laugh. And it's about a bunch of different things. It's about comedy, identity. It's a memoir about your childhood, but also about TED Talks and uh, just like funny stories, dating in England. It's, it kind of feels to me like it's a series. It's like the whole book is tangents and all the tangents are really funny. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And one of the one of the tangents that really... Uh, I think is really important and that we're going to talk about today is you talk a lot about media in the book and sort of and who makes our media and what stories media tells. Um, So I was hoping to talk to you about you have this chapter in the book called Do Immigrants Spit Out More Patriotic Babies? Mm -hmm. And you start out with a story of uh, going to summer camp at Yale when you were in high school. I was hoping you could just sort of tell us a little bit about that story for people that haven't read your book. um, You were somehow a super patriotic and super nerdy kid. Yeah, well, I mean, just to put that into context, I was president of the debate team and vice president of the theater club. So I was a very special crossover dork. And um, I, uh, I I reveled in debating and doing plays. Um, and anyways, it was just very nerdy. And uh, the summer after my junior year of high school, um, I ended up going to uh, a summer camp uh, at Yale, which where basically we wrote term papers, like for fun. That's the kind of camp it was. It was a camp where you wrote term papers. And um you know, the I, I was there with one of my best friends who's a Romanian immigrant, Anka, and uh, and I, my roommate that was assigned to me there was this Indian American girl named Kieran, and we the Kieran and I were talking about how there's we didn't have an American flag in our dorm room, but like we both had American flags in our bedrooms at home. And we were like, Oh, you know, just to like spruce up the place, we should try and get our hands on an American flag. And we couldn't really find one, you know, there aren't that many like flag stores, uh, on the streets. And, uh, and so we decided to staple a bunch of pieces of paper together and then draw an American flag and then put, we said, and we put it up in the dorm room and we had the Romanian immigrant take a picture of the Iranian-American Muslim and the Indian-American pledging allegiance to this really actually hideous flag uh, because we were not very good at drawing it. Um, And and it just is one of those things that you sort of do as a teenager, uh, but we were uber-patriotic teenagers, really... um, like uh, followed the American political system, the news, the elections, all of that stuff as teenagers and uh, really cared about all of the outcomes and really, you know, um, and, 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 and when we debated, uh, we kind of did these like debate, these debates that had no real consequence, right? Because we were in high school and nobody cares what a, what a 16-year-old has to say. Uh, but we were just so, you know, entrenched and, and heated about it. Um, and I think that part of it is because our parents were immigrants who were always teaching us that, like, hey, you know, this country you're in, we didn't get to grow up here. You better appreciate it. And so, um, and and we did. It's it's something that I think is instilled in a lot of first-generation um, kids who are children of immigrants. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because there's this conception that people have an attachment to the United States because of their history here, because, you know, your family spans back generations or somehow you're linked in some way to the the origin story of the country. But the story that you tell there frames it totally differently. Like, why do you feel like you had such an attachment to America and patriotism when your family had only been here for a couple decades? 
Yeah, well, I also had a lot to compare it to. I mean, uh, we would go back to Iran um, for summers and stuff like that. And I knew, you know, my entire family, extended family is in Iran. We were the only ones in the United States. And as and I was the only one who had been born in the United States. Um, and uh, And so I kind of reserved this very strange... Uh, position in the in the larger family of like the American cousin, and I I would go back to Iran and have a wonderful time, um, and I talk about what it's like to go back to Iran and in how to make white people laugh. But I I what are the things that happens I think when you're when you go back to a country that you know might be in the throes of war as Iran was in the 80s or might be. Um, you know, just not as economically stable as the United States or uh, just not, you know, or maybe may repressive as Iran is with the Islamic regime, you compare your life constantly. And, and I just thought, oh, my God, I have I, I really lucked out. Like I just by just being born in this one country, uh, my life is is going to turn out with. I'm going to have like a thousand more opportunities than my cousins and that's not fair. And it made me feel very guilty and also extraordinarily grateful. And I think because you can constantly make that comparison, uh, it makes you just hold on to the country you have so much tighter. Um, and like with that much more just love. Um, it's also interesting cause your, so your background and your experiences, I mean, you're not like a, a jingoistic patriot who's voting for Trump, not by a long shot. <laughs> you know, you, you have you have a master's degree in, in African-American studies and another one in public policy. And so I'm wondering, so as a, when you were that super patriotic teenager, what was your conception of American history? Did you remember learning about American history and were you critical of of the country then? Or did your criticism and your sort of critical eye on our history come later? Well, I mean, one of my favorite classes was uh, was American history uh, in uh, I think it was our junior year of high school or senior year, and uh, and you know, and I went on um, so I had a, a degree, you know, I, I double majored in government and theater in as an undergrad uh, before getting those master's degrees, which like all these degrees for a comedian, uh, it's their a requirement, um, and I, uh, I I always I. I was very, I think in high school, like I definitely went through like lots of identity confusion. I went in, I was in a high school that had, you know, a, a really large uh, Mexican population. And, uh, and I longed to be a part of the Mexican Americans. They had people like Cesar Chavez and they had ranchero music and they had issues and icons and all the teachers could pronounce their names. The teachers would be, you know, go down the attendance list like Aurelia, Rodrigo, you know, and they would like roll their R's. There was this whole like, extreme recognition of, uh, of this like ethnic group. And I just, I longed for that because when it came to me, they just didn't know what to do with me. They'd be like McGee, McGreen. Like they couldn't pronounce my name. One teacher called me noodle. Uh, she <laughs> and then she laughed and laughed. She thought it was so funny. And I was just like, that's the wrong, we're a rice based people. It doesn't even make sense. But, um, and, and I, and she ended up calling me NF for the rest of the semester, which was actually also traumatizing. Uh, cause she's just, just like, 
she was just like, I just can't pronounce your name. And that was that. Um, Wait, when you, when you told and, that story, I thought it was maybe a substitute teacher, but you're saying that was a teacher for an entire no, semester? For an entire, entire semester in the class. The class was, it was driver's ed combined with sex ed. We had both of those classes in the same hour. And so the first 30 minutes would be like, you know, this is how you do a three-point turnabout. And then the second half hour would be like, and now let us turn to the backseat of the car where the boning happens. Um, and so then we learned about sex, but it was a, yeah, it was a full semester of this woman calling me NF. But, um, I think, you know, I, early on, I, I, I longed to be Mexican. And then one, I think like everybody, I was moved by the history, um, of black Americans and how could you not be moved? Uh, and I knew that the black, I identified with the black struggle and I wanted to fight for the black struggle and level the playing field. Um, and then in, um, and, even though I knew that the black struggle was not my struggle, um, I sort of was like, eh, close enough. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of underpopulated ethnic minorities do that because they, um, they, they, they just, they think, okay, well, that thing isn't my thing. I'm, you know, I'm Pakistani or I'm Indian or I'm Sri Lankan or I'm uh, Filipino or whatever it is. Uh, and you look at, you know, you look at this kind of well-developed, minority culture and you think that's not my culture but I'll take it and uh, and I think a lot of people like me do that um, until they sort of figure out what they can do and uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with you know me delve diving deep into American history and just being jarred um, by by you know African-American history that's something really interesting you point out about how you were, you felt sort of a connection to the black civil rights movement, in part because there wasn't a lot of history that you learned about the history of Iranian-American people in the United States. You didn't have your own icons to look up to who are Iranian-American. You didn't have your own movements to look up to that were Iranian-American. And, yeah. and that's such an important part of forming identity, your own political identity. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's why it, you know, it took me, you know, many degrees, uh, in a lot of stand up to kind of get to where I am right now, because, um, because I didn't have those things. Like, you know, if you grow up on friends, you're sort of like, I wish I was Aunt Jennifer Aniston, you know, and, uh, and that doesn't mean that that's not tenable for a little Iranian American girl. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, you sort of like dip your toe in a lot of different waters because there's just nothing for you to really hold on to for very long. Well, and that speaks to the importance of having sort of histories that do recognize the um, significance of, of different types of people in the United States. You know, so I, I often talk to people about like, what's the problem with having history that's really focused on white dudes? What's the problem with that? And one of the big problems is that it really leaves out people who aren't those white dudes and helps and makes it harder for everyone else to situate themselves and understand um, what you can do with your life and what you can do in our society. If you don't have those that those role models to look to and that history to look to, it can make you feel like, well, who who am I to to aspire to something different? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think the lack of uh, role models, you know, and, and the thing is, like, when you, the, the stuff that was available for me was a totally 
like off-putting, you know, because you would look in mainstream media and this, and this is like, I went to grad school in the aftermath of 9-11 and you look at mainstream media, you, you would say, okay, there's Muslims, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're dusty dudes wielding um, AK-47s in the desert. Um, and then there's these like women, women in black shrouds that look like they're just floating. Uh, and, uh, and then there's, and then whenever they showed like, here's a depiction of Islam. It's like a mass of people doing a prayer that looks like a CrossFit workout. And it just looks so like intense and it's made to look intense. It's presented as like, look at these Muslims. They're so intensely praying, you know, <laughs> like praying is suddenly like, like a very bad thing. And, uh, and those, all of the, the depictions sort of meant nothing to me, you know, they didn't, they did, I didn't res resonate with me at all. And I think part of that is that we, we like to conflate, like we like to think of the Middle East as one big brown violent blob. Like we don't want to recognize that there's different countries. We're just sort of like, Oh, Tunisia. No, thank you. I'll take my hamburger with ketchup, please. And, you know, we just don't have like a kind of understanding of, of nuance um, for, for that part of the world. And I think um, for me, that was uh, that was what I had to go with um, in in. And I think part of like being out there and making uh, movies and doing stand up and whatever is um, kind of forging a, a, an identity, you know, for myself, because I wasn't, I was given nothing really positive to hold on to in, from the media. Well, that's something that your book, How to Make White People Laugh, really talks about a lot is sort of who's telling the stories in our society. And how are they, how do their identities shape the stories that we see? And one of the, one of the examples that you point out, which is something that comes up a lot in our culture, sadly, is how violent acts are framed immediately in their aftermath by the media that's reporting on those violent acts. And when um, an act of political violence is committed by a white person, it's often called, you know, an act of violence, violence. or a tragic a tragedy, something like that. When it's committed by a brown person, the spin is immediately, the way it is framed is immediately terrorism. Terrorism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like to, you know, and it's funny because there are plenty of political and religious motivations that go around in these other um, acts of violence. And I list a couple of examples in the book. It's funny because now that we're talking about it, it, doesn't, it sounds like it's not a comedy book, but it is, um, even when I talk about, like, violence. Uh, and um, and so, so we sort of, we, you know, for whatever reason, we have just like a different set of rules when it comes to talking about violence that comes from a brown person, you know, like the the Charleston shootings were, you know, were motivated by a certain, you know, um, sociopolitical and religious ideology. And we should call that out. But we, we really don't call that out. Uh, but if that had been a brown person, they would have been you know, acting as agents of ISIS, even though they have no formal connection, they would have been like inspired by ISIS for sure. And that's what it, you know, and that whole um, that we, you know, we've seen that narrative play out. And so a lot of what you do in your work, both with publishing this book and you've worked on a couple different films, you work as a TV writer. Um, I'm not sure if there's a medium you don't work in. Uh. <laughs> mining, mining, I don't work in. You don't work much in the mining industry. But besides that, it seems like you're involved in, in pretty much every form of making media. And a lot of that work is so important because 
when you're the person behind the camera telling those stories or when you're the person in the writer's room of the TV show writing those stories, you bring your own identities to help frame those stories and change the language that we use and the change the way that people are represented. Do you feel like... Um, do you feel like bolstered by the work that you've done and like, yes, our media climate is getting better and representation is getting better? Or does it feel like you're carving out this little niche, but mostly you're banging your head against a wall? <laughs> um, I, you know, I think, um, there's something about the entertainment business that's like, you know, they just are weeding people out for years before they give anyone an opportunity. So that's part of that is just the nature of the business uh, that you're supposed to bang your head against a wall for a really long time before you get to start banging your head against some, a soft uh, thing. And um, so that's, I think, partially the business, but also, you know, I do, I mean, I think things are getting better. Like I, I like to point out that, um, that for, for a long time, we just had the Mindy killing, um, the Mindy project. Uh, and then we had a 200% increase in Brown shows because then Aziz Ansari had a show. So, um, <laughs> it's still only two shows, you know, but it's better than nothing. You know what I mean? I'll take it. Uh, and, and I think that there is like a, a hunger for it. And now we're seeing, we're even seeing like a capitalist imperative, you know, there's, um, money reasons for you to make a show more diverse it just because it makes more money you should make make media uh that has you know female leads like scandal and and gray's anatomy in these shows they make more money than other shows so like even if you just like hate the idea of diversity but love the idea of money bags um you know <laughs> that should be enough motivation for you to to flip the switch That was Nagin Farsad. She's currently touring the country talking about her book, How to Make White People Laugh. You are listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about history, specifically how history changes depending on who's writing it. When people think about history, Usually the image that comes to mind is a big, dusty, heavy book. But there are lots of ways to document and describe history, like in a song. Down in Atlanta, GA, under the every day. In the 1920s and 30s, musician Bessie Smith told her own history in song, pouring her thoughts and feelings and experiences into the blues. Her voice has endured and resonates through time. What once was heard only on precious vinyl can now be played and replayed on YouTube around the world. Writer Jessica Machado explores Bessie Smith's history in an article she wrote for Bitch's Blue Issue in 2015. It's called Got the World in a Jug, The Legacy of the Blues Woman Transcends Genre. All brazen women in popular music, it could be argued, owe a debt to Bessie Smith. The no-nonsense, deep-voiced singer, nicknamed the Empress of the Blues, made more money than any other Black performer of her time, recording 160 songs between 1923 and 1931, many about sexual desire, abusive relationships, 
and other everyday interpersonal issues affecting black women in the post-Civil War South. She managed her own career, and her troops, in a record industry made up of predominantly male executives. She was a baller, instigating Bacnelian trysts with both men and women, and she was a brawler. Once, a man made a drunken advance at one of her singers, and she punched him in the face. When that same guy later stabbed her, she ran after him, a knife in her stomach, only to be back on stage performing the next afternoon. But the frosting on Smith's take-no-shit cake? The time she single-handedly confronted a group of Klansmen, who had surrounded her tent after a South Carolina show, yelling at them, What the fuck you think you doing? And running them off into the night white sheets tucked between their legs. But bigger and better than any of Smith's individual actions were the cumulative effects of her fearlessness, drive, and talent would have on the musical landscape for women, especially black women. The classic 12-bar sound of elation through anguish grew out of slave chants, chain gang hollers, and gospel hymns all African traditions of seeking light during the hardest times. She and her mentor, Ma Rainey, a flamboyant performer who could give the Empress a run for her fierceness, proved that women singers were no longer relegated to church or the private sphere, nor did they have to be light-skinned or doe-eyed to attract attention. Smith commanded a room with the power of her voice, her charisma, and her satirical subversive takes on gender roles and heteronormative relationships. Of course, it didn't hurt that she could put the fear of God into anyone who crossed it. In many ways, Smith and classic female blues era cohorts like Rainey, Mammy Smith, and Ida Cox shaped the sound and attitudes that would go on to dominate rock and roll. Janis Joplin named Bessie Smith as one of her greatest influences, even paying for her headstone. Country star Lucinda Williams once said she was drawn to writing the modern-day blues song in the vein of Bessie Smith. At the heart of every traditional blues song is a call and response. Whether it's between a singer and a screeching guitar, or a singer and the hip-swaying moan of an audience. It's a release for both parties, a way for the testifier and the testified to feel good about feeling bad. In the decades after emancipation, Bessie Smith called out to her community, black working-class women in the South, singing about one of the few true freedoms they had, autonomy over their own bodies and their sexuality. Smith didn't sugarcoat women's sexual appetites, groaning and elongating just the right notes on straightforward tracks like You Gotta Give Me Some and Empty Bed Blues. Nor did she romanticize marriage or needing a man, messages that wouldn't be echoed in mainstream culture for generations, singing in young woman's blues, no time to marry, no time to settle down. I'm a young woman and I ain't done messing around. But the greatest recurring theme in her music was domestic abuse, creating a public discourse about how women should be treated and offering an opposing take to the freewheeling bluesman who, in the words of Robert Johnson, was going to beat my woman until I get satisfied. In It Won't Be You, Smith, also a comedian and actress, 
jokes about having left her abusive ex, telling him that even if her next lover beats me and breaks my heart, it won't be you. If he beats me and breaks my heart, it won't be you. But society's shifting gender roles left blues women like Smith in the dust when the Great Depression hit and brought the Roaring Twenties to a halt. Record sales plummeted and vaudeville theaters closed. Plus, the more refined sounds of swing and jazz replaced Smith's brand of deep, guttural blues. For a black female performer, a showbiz career had to be made on Broadway or in Hollywood. That is, if you were light-skinned. If you were not, like Smith, then you were asked to kowtow to white producers, revamp your sound, and perform sappy standards like smoke it's in your eyes, while wearing conservative ball gowns instead of fringe and sassy headdresses. Any voice and power that Smith allotted to working-class black women in their daily lives was suddenly erased as well, as job opportunities, no matter how menial, were often lost to white women who had been driven into the workforce. Over the next few decades, the music industry continued to evolve and change, but its dismissal of women persisted. The blues became the sound of a man and his guitar, and men dominated everything the blues helped create, from R&B and doo-wop to folk and rock. The kind of progress that Smith and company ushered in for women musicians would not be felt again until the 1960s, when Etta James, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner, and Janis Joplin commandeered stages. And even then, much of their early success was mired by men who controlled their careers. Since my man's been gone, I need a little sugar in my bowl. Jessica Machado is the lifestyle editor at The Daily Dot and is a sucker for a good underdog story. You can find her on Twitter at Baggage Claimed. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're exploring who writes history. So a few weeks ago, I was at an elementary school, and the school hallways were covered with upbeat posters and bright decorations. I spotted a colorful timeline posted to the wall. It's one of those simple, mass-produced paper things you can buy at any teaching store. So I looked closer. This was a timeline of American history, and it started in 1492 with the arrival of Christopher Columbus. There are a lot of problems with this narrative. There were millions and millions of people 
living on the land that's now the United States, with complex, diverse societies that covered the North American continent long before any Europeans arrived. But still the way we're taught U.S. history often begins with the arrival of a European colonist. Why do elementary school timelines still frame Columbus as a hero who set our country in motion, and not, say, an imperialist with a poor understanding of geography who spearheaded the slave trade? Historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz takes a hard look at the mythical origin stories of the United States in her excellent book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. She was generous enough to take time to talk with me about our history and her work. Such a fundamental part of this book is about asking us to rethink the origin story that we think we know about the United States of America. And you point out that the whole idea that the United States um, is founded on sort of these these proud settlers pushing west and there being a back and forth between battles with indigenous people and there being a give and take there is really a myth. And what America is founded on is a word that we don't like to say very much, which is genocide. Can you talk about sort of how we how, how you think we should reshape the way that we see how America was was first founded and first made? Well, I think, you know, I think most um, fairly, uh, you know, progressive, educated um, people, especially a younger generation in the United States, understand of what colonialism, that Africa was colonized by the British and the French and the Dutch, and that Indonesia was colonized and decolonized, India was colonized by, and that, that, that North America was colonized by the British. But what, what they don't make the jump to, it's almost like it, it, it's never even posed as a possibility, is that the United States itself formed simply split from the from the British Empire and from and didn't miss a beat in pursuing then the building of a new empire. They even called it uh, Thomas Jefferson called it an empire for liberty. So they had no um, made no secrets about this. They didn't try to camouflage what they were doing and who they meant freedom for. They meant freedom, you know, a, a white republic. And then you get to the kind of, of colonialism the British set up and the Americans continued, and that's settler colonialism, where they want to replace the existing people, appropriate their farms, the native people's farms, and uh, simply take them and replace, get rid of them, fight them, kill them, burn their villages, uh, kill the women and children, kill everyone, or drive them out to the periphery. And this is a hundred-year process of taking the continent, one, one area after another. And it's, that is the narrative that people don't understand. And they, if they do you know, learn about, and they have much in the last 40 years or so, learn about the atrocities and the, uh, the genocide, they think that's just some kind of evil behavior that should be um, punished, reparations, you know, this, this sort of thing, but not understanding or not grasping that it's still going on. You know, it's not just history. 
there's there's still these people with you know land bases they fought for and won some that they're still barely hanging on as peoples fighting to remain and exist as peoples and not understanding that it's a whole systematic thing and we're all implicated in it we're all complicit in it as we're a part of it and of course its economic form is capitalism or else it wasn't just done for adventure you know it was it built the wealth of the wealthiest nation that had ever existed on earth so Roxanne you grew up in rural Oklahoma um, do you remember learning about United United States history as a kid and learning the origin story of the United States then do you remember what stories you heard as a kid and what was the first time when you started to think I'm not getting the whole picture or the picture isn't right at all well it's a good question I learned um Probably, you know, it was a different time. It was before the civil rights, well, before and and at the beginning of the civil rights movement, which really, you know, changed a lot because I I got involved. But in younger years, I had no no conception of anything beyond what we were told, you know, the same story and probably a little bit more fundamentalist since I, we were, you know, the whole community was also Baptist, Southern Baptist, so we had the evangelical part of it too, the mission, literally the mission to take the land and overcome barbarism and, and uh, savagery and tame it and, um, you know, that settlers were just the light of the earth. Now, we were... Um, landless farmers, you know, tenant farmers, sharecroppers, and migrant workers, so left out of the American dream. But that didn't mean it didn't exist, that my dad hated the rich, you know, the banks and the rich, the sort of simplistic uh, uh, kind of, you know, the Federal Reserve and the the Yankee power back east. Um, but I grew up with that consciousness of being working class and poor, um, and being somewhat proud of it, that we were better than the rich. So I think the first time I had, none of this made me question the um, greatness of of the founding of the United States. That little core thing was never shaken by any of this, hating the rich or anything. It's just like things had gone wrong, you know, and there's some people who can be blamed for that. So it wasn't really until my first year of college at um, University of Oklahoma that I met um, my boyfriend was an engineering student and his best friend was happened to be a Palestinian. So Saeed had a huge impact on explaining U.S. history to me. It I couldn't I couldn't absorb it all, but. He explained that, you know, the Indians all around us, you know, he was very, he identified with the Indians. He says they're like the Palestinians. And and the history is is, is like Israel, you know, your, your covenant constitution. And he, even though he was an engineering student, he was raised in a, you know, he was only eight years from being, um, uh, his family being um, chased out of their home and never to return 
you know, in uh, Joppa. So I heard all these stories and I began thinking, you know, it put a, a thought process in my mind that I've always been very grateful for because I can't think of any other way I would have gotten that so young, you know. That's why I emphasize this this core origin story that is so um is so uh impenetrable that you can learn all kinds of things and still not disturb it. So in this book I really wanted to find how can I burst that bubble, you know, because I know I've done it for myself, but it was over such a long period of time. So you point out in the book a couple concrete ways that this origin story is really embedded into the culture and the physical concrete culture of our society. And one of those ways is firsting and lasting is what it's called by the historian Gene O'Brien names it that firsting and lasting is the sort of the practice of plaques, local histories, monuments, signage to create a narrative that the first settlement in that space or to commemorate the first thing in that space is work of white people, work of white settlers that came in and built something there as if it's as if there weren't people there before. And then they commemorate the last when it comes to, to native things. They commemorate the last of the Indian tribes. Uh, you say the last of the Mohicans, Ishi, the last Indian. And right. that's that's a really interesting thing to that I think sort of wakes people up to mm-hmm. think like, oh, that I have seen those plaques. I have seen those memorials. You know, they kind of pop out where you've just sort of taken them for granted before, you know, or the names are unfamiliar, so you ignore it. And you, who is this person that's being commemorated? And you kind of look into it, and wonderful with, you know, with the Internet, you can find things pretty quickly on your on your iPhone, uh, you know, just to say right there, oh, my God. You just mentioned trying to sort of burst people's idea of what the origin story of the United States is. So I don't know if you've had this experience, but I'm curious is how do you talk about the history of the United States to kids, to people who are maybe learning their origin story, the country's origin story for the first time? Have you had to try and talk to kids about this? And when they're very first learning about the history of the United States, how do you tell that history? Well, I've had some pretty good feedback because, <clears throat> you know, I don't I don't just take, you know, little random kids and start telling them that <laughs> there's no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny. <laughs> you know, that, you know, that has to be a process for them. But uh, teachers have really appreciated this book. You know, what it seems like to me, and I have this experience, and lots of times there are quite a few young people Really, young people bring their classes to my talk. You know, their their uh, middle school classes, and I just say the same thing it was, uh, that I say because I'm not, you know, I'm not an elementary school teacher, so I I'm not going to pretend that I know how to talk uh, in in that language or in within that pedagogy. But it seems like everyone already knows this. You know, not not all the details or anything, because it's like a snap, and he says, aha, that's how it is. And it doesn't seem to have this effect, oh, my God, what have I lost now, my whole, you know, my whole dream, because people are pretty confused about why this country is so messed up, you know, why the book I'm writing now is on the Second Amendment and gun violence, you know. 
why are all these strange things about the United States so different from any other place? You know, that, um, and, and so it seems to be a kind of relief um, followed by, you know, people get back to me and they say, you know, that there's a lot of, it raises all these questions and what, what does that mean? I, I'm not supposed to like George Washington anymore. And well, my answer would be, you know, forget about George Washington. We have a, you know, we have a nation to build. <laughs> we have one, one to dismantle and one to build. That's a lot of work and we don't need George. You know, we don't need, we don't need all of that, uh, that, you know, um, what has supported a ruling class in this country that's the most vicious in human history. But then I have a, you know, I have a responsibility not just to observe, but to do something about it. That was historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, should be required reading for every American. I wonder all the time about what histories will be told about our lives. These days, there are so many ways to get your voice out there. But I wonder, what voices will endure? Whose music will we still be listening to in a hundred years? Whose tweets will be archived in museums? I'm worried that all our access to technology and self-publishing ability won't change much. That the people with the most power in our society will still be the ones who define our future narratives. What if Donald Trump or Paul Ryan are the ones who wind up telling future generations about what this election means? Ah. That's a big part of why I think it's so important to constantly document our realities and to share our actual stories. Whether you're telling your history in a song, in a book, in photos, or in stories that you share aloud with others, the important thing is to know that we are the ones who define what our lives mean. Thanks for listening. This week's episode of Propaganda is generously sponsored by Oregon State University's eCampus. Does history really predict the future? Push up your sleeves and explore how actions of our past affect the current world. An online degree in history from Oregon State University equips you with the skills to take a critical look at patterns and relationships from our history. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu history. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward. 
at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.